Well, good morning, City Church. I just want to take a brief moment to introduce this morning's speaker. To many of you, he's going to be familiar. His name is Gabe Moya, and he serves as the Congregational Care Pastor here at City Church. But for those of you who have never met him before because you're newer to the City Church family, I just want to give you this brief introduction. Gabe worked in campus ministry for many, many years. He's married to his wife, Trish, and they have two children. Gabe moved to Charlottesville several years ago to work with Chi Alpha Campus Ministry, and then he felt called of God to move towards the chaplaincy program at the hospital at the University of Virginia. During that time, Gabe was serving as a board member here at City Church, and when it became time for us to hire a congregational care pastor, it just seemed like God was leading us as the leadership of City Church to place a call on him to join our pastoral team. So Gabe has now pastored with us for several years, and for those of you who've been blessed to meet with him about things that are going on in your life, you know that he is a gifted, godly man who loves God and loves City Church. So would you now please give a warm City Church welcome to Pastor Gabe Moya as he comes to preach. And boy, I didn't know Pete was going to actually provide an introduction video. I'm going to have to up my up the ante and pay him a little bit more <laughs> as my uh, lead pastor. Um, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. It's my privilege to um, present the message. And uh, we talk a little bit about identity this morning. And it's something that is central and core to what it means to be human. And I think about one of my identities, one of the hats of identities I wear, and some of you are aware of this, um, and that is that I am, um, I'm pretty committed to being a very modest person. Um, it was a struggle for me to be in junior high school and having to shower with a bunch of other people. That's the worst time to make people shower with each other is in middle school. <laughs> I don't know if it's actually a good time, actually. But very modest, and, um, and many of you probably, many of you know this, um, Mike Starr knows this because um, I am someone that is very judicious about hand-holding during prayer and hugging. And uh, Mike will always come and, rem and uh, sort of, it's his call to sort of give me a bear hug and help me get over myself. <laughs> but I'm thinking of a time when, um, when Trish and I were married, uh, probably a year into our marriage, and we were at the local mall in Seattle. We married, met and married in Seattle. And um, we were trying on clothes at a, one of the shops there. And uh, I, got in, I ducked in, and I was trying on shirts and pants and all kinds of things. And um, Trish was waiting outside, and I would come out and, you know, uh, so what do you think? What do you think? You know, so I, after a couple of times doing this, I, um, I was trying on, I think I was trying on a shirt. I know I was trying on a shirt. And uh, I came out after I tried on some pants. I came up, and it's a crowded store, and I came, said, so what do you think? And she looked down, and she looked up, and she started laughing. I'd, I'd forgotten to put my pants back on. <laughs> I, I was in my underwear, and people were walking by going, pff, pff. So that shattered that identity for a moment.
We need to get some more sugar to these kids. <laughs> If I were to ask you to tell me who you are, what would be the first thing to come to your mind? Would it be your name, where you're from, your ethnic, cultural background, your gender, your profession? Or your role in your family—wife, husband, mother, dad. Maybe you'd even tell me your political affiliation, or your religious identity. What would you say? The question of who I am is at the very core of what it means to be human. I identify as many things: male, husband, dad, friend, minister, Hawaiian. American, Christian, etc. Filling out the medical forms and college applications and employment applications, we are asked routinely to identify ourselves, fill in the blanks, or check the boxes. Who are you? And these are important. It's important to know who you are, who we are, in all these aspects. But I want to offer this thing, this one truth. That I believe in, and that is this: that the very basis of who we are is deeply spiritual. That is, that which defines us most is who we are in relationship to to the one who created us. I believe that that is the basis of who we are. No matter what you think you are and how you answered the questions I just asked, I believe that who you are, the very basis of who you are, the Definition of who you are has to do with your relationship to the one who made us, wherever that relationship is. There are a couple of assumptions I'm, I'm making this morning. Number one, that God, the three-in-one and Creator of all things, is real and very much present to us here in this place, in this moment. And number two, that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate, come in the flesh. Was crucified, buried, and resurrected, and will come again for his bride, the church. These are two truths that I'm making assumptions, and I'm I'm thinking it's safe to make that assumption in this place this morning. Our text this morning it comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And when I say that the basis of who we are is in relationship to God. That is who I mean—the God who is revealed in the Scriptures. In fact, what distinguishes historic Orthodox Christianity from all other religions and sects is the question: Who is Jesus? And this text this morning centers around who is Jesus. And I'd like to read that for us this morning. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say the Son of Man is?" They replied. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? In some translations, but you yourselves, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." Jesus replied, "Blessed are you." 
Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of the Lord. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Certainly Jesus had some awareness of what the people were saying about him, and he didn't need the disciples to tell him or given the information that they gave him. Besides, the scriptures tell us that similar questions about Jesus were flying about. After Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples said, Who is this man? John the Baptist questioned, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Questions about Jesus. When a man delivered a demon... Delivered, uh, when, when Jesus delivered a man from a demon, the crowd asked, could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? Could it be? And there were other remarks concerning his identity. Following the teaching, the crowds were said to be amazed because he taught with real authority, quite unlike other teachers of the law. They were amazed at his ability to heal And they said of him, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. Even the demons knew his identity as the Son of God. We would read that in Matthew 8, 29. So Jesus was not ignorant of the rumors and what was being said about him. But now in this intimate and private moment, Jesus and his disciples retreated away up into a a quiet place. And in the quietness of that moment, Jesus asked the question. And it is noteworthy, their answers, isn't it? What do they say? They say, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, and one of the prophets, common to, to these mention is the notion of one who appears in connection with the coming of the end times. So certainly people had this idea, this notion that Jesus is different enough, he's extraordinary enough, that he reminds us of the promised one who is to come. Or at least he reminds us of those who prepare the way for the promised one. John the Baptist, remember, he said of himself that he is there to prepare the way. Elijah also had this function as one to prepare the way for Messiah. We see this in Malachi chapter 4. Jeremiah also was believed to be a prophet who played a part in preparing the way for the end times and the Messiah. And Jeremiah was seen to have some parallel features to Jesus, such as the preaching of judgment against the people in the temple, especially in, in the light of their presentation as suffering servants. And a prophet, one of the prophets, 
comes with the widespread view that the greatest of the Old Testament prophetic figures would return in a preparatory role just before the end of the age. So, as you've just heard, each of these have a ring of truth to it. Jesus, by his teaching, his deeds, and his life, warranted such comparisons. But it's but a ring of truth, not the complete truth as to his true identity. Rumors are like that, are they not? They tell some of the truth. There is some truth in rumors that make it compelling. But rumors are rumors because they're not the whole truth. Winston Churchill exemplified integrity and respect in the face of opposition. During his last year in office, he attended an official ceremony. Several rows behind him, two gentlemen began whispering. That's Winston Churchill. They say he is getting senile. They say he should step aside and leave the running of the nation to more dynamic and capable men. When the ceremony was over, Churchill turned to the men and said, Gentlemen, they also say he is deaf. (laughs) The problem with half-truths is that once believed, it acts as a barrier to the whole truth. And this is the case about one's true self. If the people were left with only the rumors about who Jesus was, they would never have come to know that he was something more than a precursor, that he was indeed the Messiah, the promised one. What keeps you, what keeps me, from knowing the whole truth about Jesus? There are a good many rumors and thoughts and opinions flying about even today, right? This will date me, but it will date me as a young person, much younger than I am today. But I remember the song, the old Doobie Brothers song called Jesus is Just All Right With Me. We know it. I don't care what they may say. I don't care what they may do. Jesus is just all right. And while that song, in its time, um, seemed very kind to Jesus, it's only but a part of the truth. Because Jesus is presented as someone, yes, who is accessible, he is, is he not? And, and a pal, a chum, a buddy. But that's not the whole truth. Jesus is God the Son, who was there at the beginning of creation, who called creation, all that there is, into being. He is the Holy One, the Mighty One. And we see pictures or images of Jesus in the book of Revelation that are stunning, that paint a picture of something much different than my chum, my buddy, my pal. There are consequences to what we know and believe about Jesus. Thankfully, we're not left to ourselves or the Doobie Brothers to inform us who Jesus truly is. We come to know God through God's own word. Why not let God determine the rules as to who he is? Why rely on hearsay? 
we have access to the very God of gods and Lord of lords. And in having that access, we have access to knowing him more and more, deeper and deeper. Because as I said in the beginning, I think that the primary basis of who we are, our identities, comes from the relationship that we have to the God who is our creator, the maker of us all. These disciples had been with Jesus well into all of his adventures. And because of that, they had a front row seat to all of Jesus' teaching and deeds. And so what they say about Jesus does not come from afar, but comes from near. And so we now turn to the second question, the actual pinnacle question of this moment. And that is when Jesus asked the question, who do you yourselves say I am? This is known, being known from near as opposed to from afar. The question is posed to the disciples is pointed and purposeful. Jesus is not asking for mere information, right? He's asking probably for, for the answer that he got. He is probably trying to elicit from them some deeper sense of their experience of who they believe him to be, which is, and we see Peter answering, that you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If they were in close proximity to Jesus all those years, as they had been, then certainly their awareness, their knowledge, their relationship with Jesus must exceed those who had much more of a distant relationship to him. So we would expect the disciples to say something profound. <laughs> even, though, even though we see them a little bit later wrestling with the Christ's identity. But we all of us are in process, are we not? It is not possible, may I say, and I don't say this as a, to discourage anyone, but the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we, we see through a glass darkly on this side. But then there'll come that day when we will see him face to face. We'll see all things clearly. On this side of that, we are in process. I have grown to know Jesus over the 40 plus years that I've been in a relationship with him. And I can tell you it's, it's a process of growing deeper and closer, much like the relationships we enjoy here. If you've had the privilege of growing up with childhood friends, you know what I'm talking about. If you are someone who has been in a um, marriage relationship, you know what I'm talking about. We grow in our relationship to God. And these disciples also grew. But this was a very pivotal moment for them. When, um, when they exclaimed and provided the answer to Jesus and responded to him by saying, and I say they because while it was Peter who, who answered, Peter is known to have been sort of the spokesman for the disciples. So he did. He spoke on their behalf. They believed too what Peter confessed, that Jesus is Messiah. 
And what did they believe about Messiah? What did they believe about the Son of the living God? Messiah is a Jewish word for the Greek word Christ or Christos. And it's a, it, the English uh, definition is the anointed one, the one who is anointed, to bring about transformation in the present age. So they were looking forward, the Jews were looking forward to the Messiah who would deliver them from the current situation, that is, being in subjugation to a Gentile ruling nation. At this time it was Rome, of course, but the Jews had known um, this kind of subjugation for generations and generations. And they were, they were weary, they were eager, they were hopeful, and they looked forward to this personage called Messiah who would change everything for them. The disciples were very much members of their, their race as Jews. And they persisted in asking the question of Jesus, is this the time now when you will take your throne? They still had an idea of Jesus as one who was a political figure. Messiah was a human office, not a divine office. Messiah had a divine calling, but Messiah was not considered to be divine in the minds of the Jews. And Jesus certainly stirred the pot up enough that people were wondering if he was that Messiah. I mean, the extraordinary works and the teaching, the authority with which he taught was remarkable. Maybe, maybe other Messiahs have come and gone, but this one stood out. And then in relationship with this person, Jesus, the disciples, had something more than the notion of one that is, has a human office which is why Peter gave expression to the, to the words, the Son of the living God. This defines Messiah as someone more than just a human figure, but as someone who is uniquely a manifestation of God, the very agent of God who somehow participates in God's being. I want to read for you, um, I don't have it on the slides, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16, because I think that this story probably rung true in the minds of the disciples. Speaking to David, to Samuel through God, or Nathan through God, forgive me, I don't know, but David is, the, is to hear this word. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. This could be an allusion to Jesus. He did, did he not come through the line of King David? I will secure his name he is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom 
will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So the Jews identified this person as the Messiah. And I wonder if the disciples didn't have this particular passage in mind. Serving as a healthcare chaplain has offered special and unique experiences with patients and their families. We're called upon, as you might imagine, to keep company with people who are experiencing distress related to their health. By their very role, chaplains, chaplains have the permission to ask questions like, where is God in this for you? The answers I get very much depend on the patient's relationship and knowledge of God. In one evening, I could see a patient who tells me that they have no belief in God whatsoever and go next door and visit a patient who has been a full-fledged worshiper of God, Jesus, the Messiah. The ones who don't know Christ seem much less consolable than those who do and believe in heaven. This past Friday night, I met a woman who experienced significant losses, significant losses in her life. Between April and June of this year, she lost a daughter, a brother, and a nephew. And I felt the weight of the overwhelming grief as we were processing through. But she, a lifelong Christian, said this, But God is good all the time. And I know that he loves me and will see me through and that those in my life who have passed have passed into his loving arms. And I sat there stunned. And I knew it wasn't wishful thinking. It was truth that she believed. She knew that God was a God of love and grace and that even in this dark valley he was present to her and he would continue to be, be present and that he received into his arms her loved ones. Deep from within our souls is the place from which God truth comes and that certainly was where it came from in Peter at his confession. Jesus affirms this when he told Peter, flesh and blood are not the source of this revelation, but my Father who is in heaven. That kind of truth doesn't just come from us. It's revealed by God himself. The capacity to, ex the capacity to experience God truth from deep within comes from having spent time with God in much the same way that Jesus and his disciples did with each other. There were good times. There were challenging times. They encountered friends and foes all along the way. The disciples had a front row seat at all that Jesus said and did, his extraordinary teaching and the miracles. Even when the disciples scattered for their own safety when Jesus was arrested, they did so with some consequences. I think of Peter's experience of shame when he denied Christ. But such shame 
wouldn't occur if there was no relational investment. Our relationship with God is no less fraught with adventure. There are good times. There are not so good times. We too have a front row seat to all that God is doing in our lives. Will we stick with him and hear him say what he says to Peter? In verses 17 and 20, and I say to you, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I say to you. That's an interesting process, I think. God moves from hearing what people say about him, what his disciples say about him, to him saying to Peter, and I say to you. What does he say? Peter is told that he is the rock. Petros in Greek. Upon which Jesus will build his new community, his church. Petros does not refer so much to Peter's character as much as it does to his role, his leadership among the disciples. Peter's confession and relationship to Jesus is the basis upon which Jesus could confidently say that he and the other disciples will be the agency through which the gospel message will go forth and the church will be built that even the gates of hell, the power of death, would not overcome it. There are many ideas and theories and theologies and doctrines about who Peter is, um, and this is not the time to discuss those, (laughs) but other than the fact that he he was one of Jesus' own and Jesus placed confidence in him. He furthermore said that you will be given the keys to the kingdom and the authority to bind and to loose. Again, there are many theories as to what this is, but most of those theories, by the way, do not fit the context. What does fit the context is this. Jesus very rarely does not have the religious leaders in mind when he is teaching and having a conversation or interaction. Just before this, he told them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Don't let the little yeast of their poison get in. At this time, and for many, many generations, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were the ones who held the keys to the kingdom. They alone possessed the authority to interpret the word of God or the Torah, the law of God. But we know that they did so having failed miserably. The way that they interpreted and taught from the law was not life-giving. That's why Jesus said of them and to them, you look good on the outside, but you're nothing but whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. If If you want a glimpse into Jesus' as one who is put out. (laughs) Pay attention to his interaction with the religious folks because they had the keys to the kingdom. 
They had the authority, and they were leading people astray. So Jesus now confidently takes those keys. He can, right? Because he is the lawgiver. This is part of who, this is Jesus, his identity. He is God incarnate, the lawgiver. He has the right to confer upon whomever he wishes and sees fit the authority to interpret God's word, the law, and the gospel. So he takes those keys and gives it to the disciples who had been with him and who continued to serve him, most of them who died martyrs' deaths. So he had confidence to say, I give to you the kingdom, keys to the kingdom. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That which you declare is right by the word of God is right in heaven, and that which is wrong is wrong in heaven. Jesus turns to the disciples, to, to Peter and the disciples, and in effect gives them a new identity. He changes his name, for goodness sake. And why? Because they, from the place deep within their souls, they confessed the whole truth about who Jesus is. God responds to us when we step into relationship with him. Because when we do, we are saying, you are all that, Jesus. And what happens is that God gives us a new identity. What is that identity? The scriptures tell us that we are adopted children of God. We are united with the Lord and one with him in spirit. The old self was crucified with Christ and we've been raised with him to new life. Peter says of the people of God, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And Paul declares that those who are in Christ are new creations, old things having passed away. The consequence of knowing God, knowing Christ, is having and growing into new identities. This is who we are. Those who are nearest us in relationship know us better than those who are distant. They know us from afar and relate to us on that basis. I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team up. God knows us more deeply than our closest companion and desires that to be a mutual knowing to the extent that we can know him fully on this side of heaven. Knowing God more deeply informs more deeply who we are in him. Have you been struggling with some of these questions about your true self in Christ? Perhaps you've even been struggling with who Christ is. I hope today that if you're moved by God's Spirit, you would respond to his invitation. And if you do, I would like you to meet some of the prayer team members down here at the front at the conclusion of the service and let them know that you'd like to step into a relationship with Messiah, Son of the living God, who offers a new identity to us. James tells us 
to draw close to him, and he will draw close to us. It's in that closeness that you will come to know him better, and he will help you know your true self and him better. The late pastor and writer and educator Henry Nouwen said, Spiritual identity means we're not what we do or people say about us, and we are not what we have. We are beloved daughters and sons of God. Who do you say that he is? Who do you, does he say that you are? These are two very consequential questions for us to reflect on. Amen.